they came again to Jerusalem. As he was walking in the temple complex, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came and asked him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Was it John's baptism from, or was John's baptism from heaven or from men? Answer me. They began to argue among themselves. If we say from heaven, he'll say, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, they were afraid of the crowd because everyone thought that John was a genuine prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug out a pit for a wine press and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenant farmers and went away. At harvest time, he sent a slave to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from the farmers. But they took him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another slave to them, and they hit him on the head and treated him shamefully. Then he sent another, and they killed that one. He also sent many others. They beat some, and they killed some. He still had one to send, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the farmers and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes. Because they knew he had said this parable against them, they were looking for a way to arrest him. But they were afraid of the crowd. So they left him and went away. Thank you, Lindsay. Well, it's, a, it's obviously a very special day today, sending off Cindy. It's the first Sunday of the new year. It's the first Sunday for us in this building. I told Aaron, this is kind of a little bit of pressure on me. You sure you want me to do this? But just told me not to mess it up. So I'll try not to do that this afternoon. But you may not have listened to that passage or read that passage and thought instantly, this is, this is our textbook miss, missions passage. You know, this is, this is not what you would maybe first think of as something to preach on, on a sending service to go halfway across the world. But I think as we dig into it a little bit, I think we'll all be surprised, hopefully not too surprised, because I think all of scripture is appropriate for the, uh, <clears throat> for the proclamation of the gospel to the ends of the earth. But I think this, in particular, this passage today is applicable for a kind of a mission Sunday, a sending off Sunday for Cindy, because the fundamental core, I think the main idea of this passage is really the driving force of why Cindy would go to Togo. It's that that God is in complete authority, and Cindy has fully trusted that. And if we proclaim Jesus, we go wherever we go with that conviction that God is in authority, and we are to serve him. So with that in mind, would you pray with me as we uh, go ahead into this text? God, as we come before your word, as we, as we pause, as we, as we step back from the busyness of life, as we look at this particular interaction and this story that's been recorded in the scriptures, would we, would we come at it with a, with a clear vision 
of what it means to sit under your authority, what it means uh, to be under your authority and what that means for our lives in a very practical way uh, to tell others about you. And so with that hope that we have, uh, we'd be able to do that better coming away from this text. It's your name we pray. Amen. So as we come to this passage, I'd ask you to open up in your Bibles here. It's Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 27. If you're not already there, go ahead and, and look at that. We'll try to be in it a bit. Uh, for those of you who might be visiting for this occasion, or really for all of us, this is our second Sunday kind of getting back into the Gospel of Mark. We've been walking all the way through the Gospel of Mark. We took a pause for Christmas, and this is just our second week getting back into it. So I wanted to provide a little bit of context, get us all up to speed, make sure we're kind of on the same page. Last week, uh, Pastor Aaron walked us through Jesus cleansing the temple. It was a, an example of, of kind of righteous anger where Jesus kicked out all these money changers and people who had been corrupting God's holy temple and using it for their own personal gain. And within the context of our, of our section here, uh, that event of Jesus cleansing the temple was just the day before. So as we come to here in verse 27, and it says they came again to Jerusalem. That's Jesus and his disciples coming back to the temple, coming back to the place that he had just held hostage, essentially, for a whole day and kicked all these people out. So you can imagine just the kind of tension in the air as, as it says they came again. There's this like almost this looming confrontation of like what's going to go down, what's going to happen. And as we get to it, as we come to it, we see it is a very different kind of welcoming that Jesus gets from just a few days earlier when he came in in his triumphal entry and people are shouting Hosanna. Instead of the people uh, cheering his name, praising him, he's met with these leaders, these spiritual leaders. We see the scribes, the chief priests, and the elders. And here's the confrontation we have. It's, it's something that is woefully ironic because here we have these leaders of God's people. God had given these chief priests, these elders, these scribes, a very important position of authority, of spiritual authority, over God's people in that time. And this encounter is very ironic and it's tragic irony because these people who God had given authority to, they come and challenge Jesus' authority. Uh, so. I want us to just kind of understand and let that irony sink in that here are these people given authority and here they are challenging God because of their, uh, challenging Jesus directly of his authority. And I want us to understand that as they challenge Jesus' authority, we need to really kind of have this moment where we understand that we are under God's authority and we have a decision to make. We see these people challenge Jesus' authority, they fight against it, they try to assert their own authority and resist God's authority, but I want us to come away from our passage today, I want us to understand that as we encounter God's authority, as we come face to face with God, that we come back to praise and worship him instead of fighting and resisting his authority. Now let's look at what these leaders question him when they come to him, when they have this conversation, or this confrontation. If you look at verse 28, I wanted to read it out clearly. And as you may be already glancing at it and reading, at your, reading it in your head, don't just kind of read it and say, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this permission? It's not in this curious, bland kind of like, can you just tell us? Like, we're curious, we want to know. These people were furious. These people had tremendous power and that power was being challenged. 
And so as we come to this verse in verse 28, read it in your hands, heads, hear them be angry. I can just imagine culturally, especially, a lot of loud anger, yelling, frustration. By what authority are you doing these things? They had to be furious. I think we can understand their fury because of two reasons. One, the people that Jesus kicked out the day before, the ones who had been profiting, had been selling, turning God's temple into a marketplace, these were the leaders of that temple. So who do you think was missing out on some commission now that these people had been kicked out? So I think there's some financial gain that these people were upset about. And second, I think more importantly, kind of the primary reason is that we look at the question they ask him. They ask him what authority. They feel their authority being threatened and challenged. And it's unfortunate because they picked a really bad topic to try to challenge Jesus on. They were so blinded by their corruption, by their greed, that they had missed the actual glory of God, the actual physical earthly dwelling of God. He was right in front of them. The highest authority, the one who holds the foundations of the earth together. They look at him and all they can do is try to challenge him. Now it can be easy to look at this confrontation and kind of scoff at these religious leaders, maybe write them off that this is something, of course, like I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to challenge Jesus' authority outright. But I think if we look at maybe a more subliminal level, we might understand that we can sometimes fall to the temptation that these religious leaders fell into. You see, there's a kind of a cardinal sin that I think a lot of us cannot always be aware of. It's that we take things that are meant to be important, good things, but things that are second or third importance, and we make them of ultimate importance. I want you to kind of maybe browse and look at the different headers in the, chap in the sections following our, our passage. You'll see that there's a lot of questions, a lot of different religious leaders come to challenge Jesus. In today's passage, we see they, they're challenging him almost in kind of a societal status thing. They want to know, what authority do you have? Like, what, uh, what rabbi are you under? What institution? What school? Like, they want to know where he's getting his credibility from. So they ask him kind of a societal question to kind of stump him. Uh, next we will read, they ask him a political question. They want to know where are you going to put your loyalty and are you going to pay to Caesar or are you going to support an insurrection? So they ask him a political question. And then the next question we'll see in a, a few weeks is they ask him a theological question you know, about the afterlife and who will be married to who. And you know, they kind of have these three questions I noticed of a societal question, a social issue, a political question and a theolog theological question. And it kind of struck me going through this passage, I wonder if we make the same mistake as these religious leaders. How often do we make these kind of secondary or tertiary uh, topics the ultimate, most important thing that we believe in? I'm sure we all have very strong opinions about social issues about political stances or about theological topics. And those convictions are good, those convictions are important. But if we really think about it, have we let some of those identities that we are tied to, whether it be a political party, a social movement, or a theologian or a group that we hold so importantly, 
are we losing sight of what is of first importance, of what really is our core identity? And I just want to use that as a moment to reflect and even point us to verse 29 of chapter 12, when Jesus has been given all of these kind of tests and questions from all these religious leaders. He comes to them in a very simple summary and says, what's the most important commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And that's something that is very simple, is very straightforward, but can often, unfortunately, take a back seat in our lives when we get so caught up with these power struggles or authority struggles of wanting to be on the right political spectrum or theological idea. So I wanted to use it as a time to call us back to reflect, to make sure that we are putting first things first when it comes to following Jesus. I wanted to jump to chapter 12 and verse 1. I think reflecting on those two commandments is important because it, it brings us to a state of worship. It brings us, first and foremost, to the feet of God in humility and in worship of him. And then it points us outward to serve others. And as we go into chapter 12, we see this parable that Jesus teaches. And he uses this to convict the religious leaders. And in, it's direct to them, but it also has application to us. But as you look at the start of the parable, immediately Jesus says, a man planted a vineyard. This might not spark necessarily anything for us today, but back then it would have had an immediate understanding that when Jesus opens with those words, that he is he's speaking as a judgment to these, to these leaders. And you'll notice at verse 12 it says they were seeking to arrest him because they perceived that he told the parable against them. See, that, that imagery of a man planting a vineyard is almost identical to what God had given the prophet Isaiah. And we find in our Bibles in Isaiah chapter 5, God used this very similar imagery of planting a vineyard to represent the way that ancient Israel was meant to reach the nations. But in Isaiah 5, they fail and they also are given judgment and God destroys the vineyard and says that they'll be scattered and conquered. And so this parable that Jesus teaches in a lot of ways is kind of like that same story but in an updated version because now the ancient Israel is scattered, they're in exile, they're living under a Roman oppression. They still have leaders though who are ignoring God who are fighting against God authority and they're using their own spiritual authority for their own wealth and for their own gain. And so this parable here tragically portrays people who have turned against God. And as we look through the parable, I want to just make sure we're all on the same page here. The, the different players kind of actions going on here is important just to pick up on. When it talks about the vineyard owner, that would be referring to God the Father. The, the kind of wicked tenants throughout, those would be the religious leaders in Israel's history. The servants that are sent to go collect, those are God's prophets. And then the son of the vineyard owner, uh, that would be referring to Jesus. Jesus referring to himself there as he tells the parable. So I wondered as that story was read, or maybe you've heard this story in, in years past, I wonder if you have the question kind of come up in your mind as 
the landowner keeps sending servants, sending more and more people. I wonder if you ever had that kind of question pop up and say, why, why did he keep sending? Why did he give so many profits or so many servants to collect? And on kind of a more applicable level to us today that we can relate, I'm sure we've all asked, why does God let so much evil continue to happen? It's something that doesn't sit right with us, I'm sure, as we consider the evil in our age, which is great, but has also always been great. And I want us to consider that kind of issue. I wish I had a super clear-cut answer for you. If it was super black and white, it wouldn't sit so frustratingly with us. But there is something that I hope to get at here to help us better be at peace and to have a better understanding of how God interacts with evil in the world. First and foremost, when we think of evil, when we think of the kind of just systematic oppression, especially in this parable, we have to understand that evil and sin is a personal offense to God. In every sin from every person, it is a retaliation against the Creator. And it is personal for God. And however angry or personal you might feel for a someone doing something wrong against you or however angry you might feel for injustices going on in the world can guarantee you that God is angrier. That he is more upset because he's the one who made everybody and we are made in his image and when there is rebellion against him I can guarantee you that he is more upset than we are. And we know from last week that it's okay to be angry. In fact, it's a healthy thing to be angry. As Aaron talked about, without anger there's no love. But how do we know when God will be angry? How do we know for how long God will be angry? Why didn't the vineyard owner in our story, why didn't he just destroy them after they disrespected his first servants? Or after the second ones? Or after they killed ones? Why did he have to wait so long to send his son? Well, many people might have an impression of God and I think a cultural kind of uh, issue that people have not been able to get over for a long time in our society is they, they view God as just so quick to judge, as to punish, and he's just kind of a policeman waiting to get you. On the other hand, I think maybe people will read this parable or people have an understanding that, that God is unpredictable. You don't know when he's going to be angry. And they might even see God as kind of a pushover who just lets all these different servants get killed, all these, even his son, get murdered. <clears throat> but God is neither a pushover, he is not irrational in his anger, and he's also not too harsh in his anger or his judgment. What we do know first and foremost about God throughout the whole story of scripture and throughout this parable here, that God is in his essence love. And in his love, God is just. And his justice that is enacted at the end of this parable, and when he finally does get rid of these wicked tenants, the justice that he shows to them, and the mercy that he shows to them throughout by giving them chance after chance after chance, those two things, both the mercy and the justice, are given in love. I wanted to give a human example that I think maybe helps 
give us a better understanding of this kind of tension of just how can God do both and how can they both be in love? It was a story that I heard when I, when I studied in Jordan, actually, when I was in college. There was uh, this story about the late King Hussein, who was this, the king of the country of Jordan. And the story goes that one night there was apparently information that there was a group of like 75 or 100 soldiers who were in a room planning imminently a coup against the government, that they were getting ready to have a military takeover of the country. And the king was informed of this. Somehow it was found out. So the king is told about the situation. Can you imagine how, how just heartbreaking and angry it would be to have your own men turn against you in such a grand way? And his advisors had already given him a plan to storm the building, take these guys out. But as the story goes, the king declined those options to storm the building and have these guys taken out. Instead, he goes himself to the building where these guys are. He goes into the room where they are. And he steps in and he says, here I am. And he says, why do this? If you are going to do this, you're going to throw this country into a civil war. You're going to have thousands of people die. Instead of doing this, instead of overthrowing this government, just take me. Kill me now. And as we know, maybe some of you, King Hussein did not die by that method. But the men rushed at him, and they kissed him, and they begged for his mercy, and they pledged their allegiance to him. I think the way that that example of a king, an earthly king, putting his anger and whatever just intense feelings he had to take these guys down, he put that aside, and he was able to show vulnerability and able to come to them in a way that brought them to repentance that was so much more meaningful in such a greater way than would have been if he simply just came in his anger. And I share that story because I think it helps us get a little bit closer to understanding how God treats sin. God treats sin in an even greater scale on such higher stakes both in our own individual lives and on a grand scale of creation. And this parable helps reveal to us how God displays his steadfast love. And if you look at the movements of this parable, they're all pointing back to the vineyard owner. I know that heading says the parable of the tenants, but the story is really not about the tenants. The story is about the owner. He is the one who bought the land, who tends the land, who rents it out, who sends his servants, who sends his son, and he is the one who ultimately destroys. What this story is getting at, what Jesus is pointing us to, is that all the evil, all the wickedness that's going on, God is still in control. So if God's still in control, though, why does he put himself at such a risk? I think because that's just at... At its core, that's who God is. That's how love embodies itself, is through that risk. And what we find on display in this parable is really no different from how God handles wickedness throughout all of Scripture. He shows his judgment and his mercy hand in hand. 
and through it all, his steadfast love is the anchor to it. In both the mercy and the judgment. He displays them perfectly, and because of that, we would do well to submit to his authority rather than fight it, rather than run away from it. Instead of distrusting God, instead of being stubborn against him, accept his authority. We are like children sitting at the feet of our Father. What other choice do we have? What other way can we go? There's nothing more beautiful than to embrace him. There is nothing more fulfilling than understanding and coming to terms with the reality that God is in complete control and that we can trust him. Because unlike these wicked tenants, unlike these corrupt religious leaders, God will never abuse his authority. And now I want to look at the last few verses here. In verses 11 to 12. Because that's where I think it really comes all to a head. And we find a hope in what has transpired through the story. See, Jesus helps us understand through this parable that God is working not only to judge, not only to hold people accountable. He doesn't just destroy the wicked. But God builds something new. He builds something more beautiful than we could have ever expected him to. And Jesus wielded his authority in a way that nobody, nobody thought. Very few people thought he would use his weakness to demonstrate his power. And this gives us that kind of just no strings attached. There's no second guessing. There's no in the back of our minds fearing that God's out to get us. Because as we see the way that Jesus went to the cross, that he's so selflessly sacrificed himself. All we can really come to is a state of amazement and wonder. And that's why I think it's so beautiful in verse 11. You'll see in the little indentation quote there. It says, this was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. This phrase is from Psalm 118. Aaron read a larger excerpt surrounding that passage earlier in the, in the service. And what's the marvelous thing that the Lord has done? You'll see the first half of verse, uh, verse 10. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. It might be a strange image or not fully something you would use in regular conversation every day to explain what, our, what it means to be a Christian or what our hope is in God. But it is a very powerful and a very important uh, truth that I think we need to look at a little more closely. And to do that, I'd ask you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. I think it's worth going to because it helps explain what Jesus is getting at. So just a couple books further in your Bibles is Acts chapter 4. And starting in verse 7, I'll read. What's going on in Acts chapter 4? This is just a few weeks later after Jesus has died and resurrected and ascended into heaven. His early followers are proclaiming his name. And we come to an instance where Peter and John have been arrested for proclaiming Jesus' name. In fact, they were healing in Jesus' name. 
And what do we find here in Acts chapter 4? But these elders and scribes and priests were gathered here in Jerusalem. I think we'd have to think that these are probably the same people who questioned Jesus in our passage today, the same people who plotted to bring Jesus down. And sensing the irony of the situation in which these religious leaders are asking Peter and John, what authority do you do these things? Peter explains further the importance of Jesus' quotation of Psalm 118. So let me read Acts chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. So when they had set, sorry, when, and when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, so the religious leaders inquired of Peter and John, by what power or by what name do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And here's where we get our key explanation. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This story that Jesus tells, this quotation of Psalm 118, is used as, as the foundation of the church. It's again quoted, Second Peter writes it in some of his early letters to the church. It's such an important truth that we have to rely on wholeheartedly. And this truth is so powerful because it has the ability of Peter and John and the early church to offer forgiveness to the people who plotted and schemed and ultimately helped crucify Jesus. They still offered forgiveness in his name. That is how powerful the name of Jesus is. That is how unending and far-reaching God's love is, is that he would offer his forgiveness to people who tried to destroy him. Now, sadly, those men did not repent, as you might read later in that chapter. As the early church grew, these leaders only tried to persecute the church more. But let's not make the same mistake of encountering God's authority and foolishly thinking that it gives us authority to have what we want instead of what God wants. As we reflect on this parable... My prayer has been that it will bring us all to a repentance and a reflection of all the ways that we do tend to abuse our own power. Whether it be big or small, conscience, consciously or subliminally, we would do well to stop and reflect and ask for forgiveness for the ways that we have been using God as a means for bringing our ourselves into a place of more comfort or more power. As followers of Jesus, we're called to a standard of service and sacrifice like our Savior who didn't use his power for gain, but used it to give it up for others. But we can't just 
come away from this sermon, uh, this passage, thinking that our application and our main goal is just to not be like the wicked tenants. I would be remiss if we walked away from here thinking, let's just do our best to not be like those wicked religious leaders. While we are needing to be on the lookout for ways we are abusing authority, for the way that we might be using God for our own advantage, that's not the primary thing that we should be taking from. Because if it is, then we're just kind of moralists trying to do good things, hoping that we do enough good so that God will accept us. The way that we, I think, respond to this passage is that we, we have to come to God offering our own allegiance to him, knowing that he is in full authority and he is in full control. Our focus should not be on our own ability to do good things, but our focus coming away from this story is to understand that Jesus has full authority over our lives, and because of it, we worship him and we praise him. And that overflows into all areas of our lives. And it is the power, as we saw in Acts, it is the power of the Holy Spirit that is working through us to be able to not just proclaim this word, but to go out and live it. God offers, a, God offers us a sacrificial love that we don't deserve. We need to likewise offer mercy and forgiveness to people who don't deserve it. It's not our job to judge. We should get angry. We should be angry at sin. But as we think about the things we're angry about, and we think about forgiving people, I urge you to do it in a way that is rooted in love, knowing that God has loved us in the same way. And we have this assurance, and we have this, this approach towards God, not needing to worry that our sins will keep us from him. Our sins do keep us from him, but God has decided since eternity past that he will bear our sins, that he will forgive us in a way that is more greater than we could have ever imagined. Now that should be something that is marvelous in our eyes. What a beautiful thing it is to put your hope in. I can't think of something that is more fulfilling for our souls than to go out this week with that assurance, knowing that the authority of God is what we answer to first and foremost. So whether you're going to Togo this week, whether you're going to work across town, whether you're staying at home with your kids, we all share this common identity as followers of Jesus, that we sit under his authority alone. And as we encounter his authority, let it not lead us to abuse any authority given to us. Let it not lead us to resisting him or being stubborn against his commands, but let it lead us to praise and worship of him because he is the cornerstone. That is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Would you pray with me? God, as we come before you today, as we come before you each Sunday, as we come before you each morning, which eat with each new day, would it be marvelous in our eyes what you have done? Let the story of Christ never get dull. Would the amazing work of the cross always be something that we marvel and something that we come to you 
with praise and adoration because we know that what you have done is greater than anything we could have done to try to earn your favor. So we ask for a renewed hope through your Holy Spirit that we would see with fresh eyes day in and day out the beautiful mercy and forgiveness along with your perfect justice that you love us and that you long for all peoples to know you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.